All right, welcome back to The Jig Is Up. My name is Darcy, and of course, as always, joining me is Jason. How's it going, buddy? I am freezing. How about you? <laughs> well, I'm a little cold, but I feel bad complaining because you seem to be a little bit colder than me. Just a tad. Hey, we had a heat wave, though. Warmed up to minus 25, so almost got to undo my jacket today. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> good good for you. I don't, I don't even know what to follow that up with, but uh, hey. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't last too I'm, long. No kidding. Otherwise, I'm going to have to invest in an ice chipper for my beard. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, eh? Well, we won't hold you too long because I know you got a whole pile of wood to chop, and I know you're super excited to get back out there tonight, even, and, and do that throughout the middle of the night. So, we'll, that's uh, me, Mister yeah. Chopping Wood, to stay warm. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get rolling here as quick as we can. Um. So the first thing I had for tonight's show was uh, there's $700 million kind of unaccounted for and unspent within the Canadian Indigenous Relations infrastructure budget. Um, so I thought I'd play a quick little video or, or audio, I guess for everybody listening, it's audio, of just uh, Hunter Tutu um, talking in Parliament asking about this. So let's see if I can get this to work properly. Or Nunavut. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is for the Minister of Indigenous Services. $700 million missing. That's what was identified by a media analysis of this government, of the spending of your government's infrastructure program. And that reporting gap was directly attributed, directly attributed to an ongoing failure by your department and Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs to report details of their spending. Nunavut has a huge infrastructure gap, particularly social infrastructure. So I have to ask, where is this missing $700 million and why hasn't it been invested in these desperately needed projects? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I want to remind the honorable members to place their questions through the speaker, not to the speaker, just to facilitate things. The honorable minister of indigenous services. And I thank the honorable member from Nunavut for that question. We are making significant investments in, in Nunavut uh, in conjunction with our indigenous partners. For instance, we've invested some $27.5 million over five years to eliminate tuberculosis by 2030. We're working with our partners and have invested $189 billion over 10 years in a Nunavut wellness agreement, as well as $8.4 million this year alone for mental health support for Inuit. But we understand, too, that significant investments require accountability, and I will continue to work with the honourable member and with local partners to make sure that we have that accountability for his constituents and for the people of Nunavut. Thank you. All right, so that's just Hunter Tutu asking, uh, where did that $700 million go? And the, the response from the Canadian Indigenous Relations Minister, Seamus O'Regan, was that, uh, you know, well, they've spent a few million dollars, so really, on, on other programs, so really, we should be good, right? Um, so I don't know if you had a chance to read much of this story, Jason, but, uh, I mean, what are some of your initial thoughts if, if, you, uh, if you didn't? Well, I think that the challenge I have with this is, again, here we've got uh, a minister just new to the job who really is just talking political doublespeak, right? Like, you know, so what What really I got out of it was a, a bit of misdirection and they don't really have any idea where the money is or where it was supposed to have gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and that's, it's, it's always interesting because, uh, you know, I know we've talked about it a plethora of times and almost to the point where I'm pretty sure people are getting sick of it. But these governments make these promises. Even in the video, the minister talks about how, 
You know, they've committed to a $189 billion wellness program for Nunavut over the next 10 years. And, but the whole point of this is, is they promised money back in 2015, 2016, and we're, we're still like $700 million short in this one particular program. So out of that promised money that they promised to spend, they haven't spent the money. And it, there's some really almost scary things going on. Like uh, just some, some things from, from the articles that I was reading about this, um, Ottawa's uh, budget watchdog found gaping holes in how the spending was being tracked, reported, revealing a program that seems to lack any organization and transparency. The, the plan was spread across 32 different departments and agencies, each responsible for its own individual pool of that money. Uh, then that, infra- that sprawling infrastructure was at least partly responsible for widespread reporting gaps across all the agencies, leaving billions of dollars unaccounted for. Uh, in February 2017, the uh, um, budgetary office, provincial or parliamentary budgetary office, released a report that they found only 4.6 billion of the 13.6 billion in planned spending under Phase One of the program um, for 2016-2017 had actually been assigned to specific projects. Many of the agencies couldn't even provide basic information like a list of projects they wanted to do, project costs, anticipated start dates. Uh, a June 2017 study by the Senate National Finance Committee said it was troubled by the fact that there was no federal department accountable to Parliament for the $186 billion program, which is eerily close to the $189 billion they are promising for health for Nunavut. So it's another program. Well, how many departments and agencies is that going to be spread around? So to me, these are some very alarming things when you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, That they just say, oh, oh, wow, we have no projects, we don't know when they're starting, and we can't really account for any of the money we've spent so far. Well, and as we know, um, it's probably the portfolio that affects uh, Indigenous people right on the ground, and that's infrastructure. You know, when we're talking, you know, housing, uh, clean drinking water. Yep. You know, uh, access to just get around on the roads in the wintertime and and different projects like that. You know, the very fact that the money's allocated. And I think even more than the fact that it's missing is that they've created this line item on a budget to spend the money in infrastructure. And inside the government's own bureaucracy, there's the money is just unaccounted for. No one knows when or where it's supposed to have gone. And most of these agencies that are supposed to be dispersing these funds in different projects don't actually have any wherewithal to make this happen. And so here, here again, we see that, the, you know, like you said, of, of all the billions of dollars that are promised, does the government actually have the commitment and the wherewithal within its own uh, structure to yeah. ensure these funds adequately hit the ground where they're needed? Well, and that's just it. And we saw this under the Harper government and everybody was was really critical of them about, they would say, okay, while well, our budget for whatever year is going to be, you know, we're going to increase it by $3 billion for Indigenous people. But then at the end of the year, that $3 billion would never have gotten spent. And so then people are starting to go, well, how are, like, where, where's this money going if we're not getting it? And they did that with Veterans Affairs. They did that with Indigenous Affairs. I'm sure they did that with the numerous other departments. And so, 
you know, the liberal government comes in and they're going to do everything differently. And yet we're still sitting here with the same kind of thing. Here's money that's promised, money that's budgeted, and money that doesn't appear. <laughs> and I mean, when you're talking, you know, you can only account for $4.6 billion out of $13.6 billion in planned spending. That's a huge gap. I mean, that we're not talking $100 million, which is, to me, still a huge gap. We're talking like, you know, many billions. <laughs> like, it's it's almost $10 billion difference. So, what like, what's going on? Where... If the money's not being spent, then what's going on? And, and I, I, I think for Métis people, this should be one another one of those articles that wakes people up and says to the fact that government promises clearly mean absolutely nothing. Well, and it shows you how how much under the liberal government we can talk about you know the woes of the conservative government. But since the the Trudeau government's come into power, we've really seen that uh, there's a real problem in administration and yep. the lack of ability for these portfolios to deliver. And so, you know, where Harper basically shut Indigenous people out, underfunded everything, you know, and basically, you know, froze the Indigenous conversation. And uh, we have the Liberal government flipping the tables and promising all kinds of money. And all kinds of promises of reconciliation, all kinds of promises of funding, and yet we're we're just seeing this little trickle come out, you know. Yeah. So you, it's a staggering percentage of funds that they can't even tell us that got eaten up in administration. You know, it's not in yeah. the administration that's eating up this cost. They just have not have a clue. There's not a budget. There's no transparency. Uh, there's no accountability, so we don't know if the money got spent by these different agencies on their own administration costs. You know, uh, yeah. where did the money go? You know, under Harper, there was no money. Nobody got nothing. Yeah. And now <laughs> we're just like, where? where is the money? You know, it's like trickling yeah. out. You know, it's like somebody's stepping on the garden hose and you're not getting any water out of it. Absolutely. Well, and that's the really scary part about this is that, I mean, they can't even say that, oh, well, we've hired you know, 200 more staff members in order to, you know, administer these programs. They, they're not even giving you that information. They're just simply saying it, it just, I don't know. We don't, we, we planned for this, but we don't really have any projects. We don't know when they're going to start. We don't know how much it's going to be. We don't know what the costs are. We don't know where we're going to spend the money. And so it just sits. And I mean, this is, this has always been an issue for me when I listen to government or politicians' promises, especially around an election time. Um, and, you know, we're heading into an election here in Alberta, provincially. We're going to be heading into another election federally here right away after that. Um, so it's, when you listen to these politicians, they'll say, oh, well, we're going to make things better for Indigenous people. What does that mean? What, what specifically does that mean? And that's what I think is really, you know, clearly obvious here is, we're going to put $886 billion over 10 years into infrastructure. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, but where, you know, where's that money? Where is it? Where's it coming from? Where, where is it going? There's just, there's no plan. There's no specifics, nothing. Well, and I, I think that's the big thing. And it's, we see a lot of these promises coming out after their budget's already been approved. Uh, you know, they, they take the budget, it goes through the house of commons 
the vote on it. And the reality is, is then they, even though after that, there's still all this money that's being promised and promised and promised. And I, I, the reality is, is, you know, um, no one asks where's, where in the budget is the money coming from. They just yeah. promise it will be in the, in the budget without having that budget have gone through the house as it were. And then when push comes to shove, you know, we've talked about this before too, how many years down the road uh, are different agencies, indigenous agencies, first nations portfolios still waiting for that funding to hit the floor. And on a portfolio, you know, that affects indigenous people, like I said before, as critically as infrastructure, you know, um, you think that this would be something that would be kind of front and center in that conversation of reconciliation to make sure that that money was going to where it was needed, not grossly, you know, disappearing. Absolutely. And I mean, it, it says a lot when you look at the promises that have been made to Métis people with, with the the last budget that every, you know, the the cartel and, and, and organizations like that were just like, woohoo, it's awesome time. We got all this money coming to us. But has it even arrived? And when, I mean, in comparison to something like this, where it's a hundred, almost $200 billion program, compare that to what they said they're going to spend from AT on housing, which is $10 billion over 10 years. Well, I mean, we're talking almost peanuts compared to this program. But if they, I mean, they can't even account or come up with a plan and, and or, you know, figure out how to administer this money there's no hope it's going to make it there. So when you look at the Métis budget from from the last last budget, so 10 billion in housing over 10 years. Okay, so that's a you know billion a year. But what does that mean? Like are are we going to actually see a billion dollars or are they going to have, you know, are we going to see 10 million and then they go, "Wow, we don't know where the rest of it went. Who knows?" And and I suspect that's what you'll see. Well, and that's the thing is we got billions of dollars over how many, you know, a decade, over how many different portfolios for how many different issues divided by how many different First Nations and Métis and Inuit. You know, the, and here we see just on this one issue, their inability to deliver, you know, multiply that by all those factors is about how confident I am (laughs) this money is ever going to make it to anybody that really matters. Absolutely. And I mean... This is, um, you know, this is stuff where, um, I mean, with First Nations, it's a lot more prevalent because it's, we're talking a lot more money, we're talking a lot bigger programs, but we're also talking about people who have very specific land bases, uh, very specific locations, and very specific, you know, chief and council, all that kind of stuff, and they have to report all their spending, and and so there's all that stuff in place. So what happens with the Métis money where there's none of that in place? There's no even theoretical accountability or transparency on that money. Uh, so they're just going to hand a check to one of the cartel agencies, organizations, and just say, hey, have a good time. Have fun. <laughs> like, what? I mean, we, we see here that this is spread out over 32 different departments and agencies, and they can't account for anything there. Well, how are we going to be account? How is that money going to be accountable for Métis people? When that money dries up and there there wasn't a lick of housing improvements and everybody's going, well, where did all the money get spent? And there's just shrugging shoulders everywhere from the federal government right down to the cartel organizations. I mean, because that is what's going to, that's what's happening here. It's going to, that's what's going to happen there. Yeah. And then you really begin to wonder, like, 
So really, is the government promising all of these uh, programs, like all this funding, really to create more bureaucracy and more agencies within itself to administer them? So is ever going to be, you know, is the government going to be going on a huge hiring spree to create these departments to interface with uh, the Métis people? You know, we're going to have the, you know, once the Métis Act comes in, we're going to have our own department with our own agencies to oversee all these portfolios to administer all these funds across another, you know, 32 departments for Métis people. Is that how that those this billions of dollars is going to work? Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, it's really mind boggling. And I, I, I keep going back to, to Harper government just because I know there was a lot of flack about them making promises and then not spending the money, but then going, Oh, look, we, we, in theory, balanced the budget. Well, it's because you didn't spend any of the money you promised that you were going to spend on these certain departments. And I just, I cannot help but think, what kind is that? It seems to me this is exactly the same thing that the liberal government's doing right now, where they're going to suddenly go, you know, we forecasted a deficit of X amount of billions, but in reality, it was 18% better than what we expected it to be. Aren't we awesome? Well, no, because you just didn't spend the money <laughs> that you promised you were going to spend. So, it, it just seems to me like it's very clear that's what they're going to do coming into an election. They want their books balanced as best as they can. They want to make it look like they're doing better than they anticipated. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. You and I both know most of these promises that they're making are all are all pre-election and they're also uh, post-budget. So um, there's where does all of this promising really going to pan out at the end of the day? Because we know that before the next budget passes, they're going to be heading into an election, really, as far as I recollect, anyway. Um, and so, will this will all, all this funding hit the cutting room floor if they lose the next election? Yeah, you know, yeah, makes makes me wonder. Well, I mean, I just it. The worst part of this is is that's automatically where you have to start thinking. You have to start thinking, why well, are they doing? Like they must be doing this for a reason. They must be trying to you know, shift this around and make it disappear so that they can benefit somehow. Either that or they're just completely incompetent. And I know, you know, for the lefty righties people, well, Harp or Trudeau's an idiot and conservatives are way better. Well, no, they're all idiots. So, but the truth is, is I, I just have this suspicion that it's going to come out in, in the books that are the budget that's closest to the election that, hey, look, we're doing better than we thought, you know, and, and I, it's really too bad because it's at the expense of people getting their hopes up that, hey, they said they're going to spend, you know, $13 billion in phase one of this infrastructure stuff, but really only $4 billion got spent or is scheduled to be spent and the rest of it they can't even find. So uh, it, it's just, it's too bad because people's expectations get so high. And then they're just disappointed. Well, and I think even more than expectation is the need is great. And yeah. the ability for those funds, if they were properly managed to really help Indigenous people, would go a long way in making right some wrongs. Absolutely. And instead, what we're going to see is like on every portfolio, there's a cap, it's underfunded, it's chronic, and it doesn't look like, you know, this is not some hopeful sign on the horizon that somehow the Trudeau government is succeeding where the conservatives failed. Yeah. 
what we really see is again my scenario you know the which cough medicine do you like do you like your buckley's where it's straight up and punches you in the face or do you like your vicks where you get a little bit of sugar and it goes down better (laughs) either way (laughs) the result is the same you're taking your medicine and that's sure how it is with the trudeau government is it's a lot of sugar coating in the form of money and funds and promises but what really hits the ground at the end of the day what can we really depend on them to deliver this is another great example of, you know, like you said, don't get your hopes up. Well, that's just it. And I think it sets a really poor, poor example of, you know, just how untransparent and unaccountable governments are at any level to to the taxpayers, to to the citizens as to, you know, where money's spent and how can we expect you know, Métis organizations to be transparent and accountable when our own federal government's like, oh, you know, we just lost a few billion, whatever. Eh, it'll come out in the wash somewhere, right? And that seems to be their attitude, government to government to government. Well, that, that's what I think the Trudeau government learned from the Harper government is it all just works out on paper. You just got to, you know, put your line items in order and your uh, budget's all balanced on paper. <laughs> well, wasn't he famous for saying, well, bu- the budget, the balance or the budget will balance itself. That's right. Because is this paper, man? You can just change a few things here or there, and it all works out on paper. Yeah. Meanwhile, the people that actually need these services and need this infrastructure and need this money spent are still getting screwed and are the ones that pay the price for this. Um, and it's that's the sad reality: is our government systems are so broken that that a certain amount of funding would help, a certain amount of organization and efficiency, and all that stuff would help. And it's just, you, you you just really have to realize that's not, that help is not coming because it's not beneficial to the government to do that. It's, it's only beneficial to us if they were to do that, but to them, it's job security if they don't. So it's, it's, it's just really too bad that people got to pay for this while these governments and MPs and everybody else gets their expense accounts and their cars and their travel budgets and their, all this, you know. Cartel organizations get to spend, you know, three to five thousand dollars a day on travel and lawyers and all this other stuff. Meanwhile, there's people that actually could use some money, use some help with housing, you know, these kinds of things, health programs that they really truly pay the price. And that's the sad reality. Yeah, as always, this is about, you know, I think it's about vote getting. This is about uh, swaying the indigenous vote to, to keep it going the liberal way. Um, and that's a combination of scare tactics of what uh, the Harper government did uh, compared with what the promises are in the future if they win the next election. And yeah. I think that, those, you know, it's the left and the right of this is that, you know, we forget that's the same bird, that they want <laughs> those promises. You want that 10-year budget? Well, you got to vote them in to get the next four, you know, and then there's yeah. going to be an election after that. Yeah. And so long-term... You know, when you're talking billions of dollars, but then you divide it by 10 years and then you shorten that by a four-year election at the end of that, even if they get in, you know, how much of that money are you actually going to see? Yeah, completely. And in, in, even in the, even if, if everyone, you know, if them and sees uh, wet dreams come true and they get voted in, you know, and, and Jesus stays in power for another <laughs> four years, you know, how much of that money in that four-year time frame out of the 10-year time frame is going to be delivered. Yes. You know? 
Yeah. And I, th- I think that's what this whole issue of these unaccounted for funds over the multiplicity of these organizations within the government shows is not dependable. It's not reliable. And it really boils down to more hollow, you know, colonial settler government politics promises. Absolutely. And I think that's the other thing for me, too, is when you think about, uh, you know, a certain president of a certain organization claiming that this guy is, you know, Trudeau is the answer to our prayers and he's the he's done the most for indigenous people of any prime minister in the history of Canada. And I mean, you know, that, the, first off, the bar is set real, real low on that. But the truth is, is like, okay, they made a promise to remove boil water advisories in Canada. They have not fulfilled that promise. There's maybe a few places that are not boil water anymore, but there's still places that are. Well, where's this $186 billion infrastructure program? I mean, a water treatment facility doesn't cost $186 billion each. So where's this, where's this money? Where, what are they doing with it? And so you just have to realize, like, I think anybody that says this guy's the answer to our prayers and all that, I think right away people should be suspicious of that. Um, and the truth is, is you know, as Indigenous leaders, I think you really need to step back and say, hey, we'll work with any government. However, until our issues and our, our stuff is dealt with, I'm not giving anybody praise. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of this stuff about not giving them sacred, you know, headdresses and all this stuff and sashes. No, no. Until they've resolved the issues, I think we should hold off on the praise of, you know, Lord Jesus Trudeau and all these other things about how awesome they are. The proof is in the pudding. When the money shows up and the housing gets fixed and our friends up in Conklin and up in these northern communities actually get adequate housing and get some of these health concerns dealt with, then I think we can say, okay, well, maybe this, whoever is in charge at the time, maybe they are worth that praise. Yeah, it's worth the gifts. It's worth the headdresses. It's worth the honor, you know, in those ceremonies to do those kinds of things when we can see when the rubber hits the road and we see some of these issues get resolved. I mean, we got communities here in Alberta that don't have clean drinking water. We have, like you say, we have Métis people specifically, even up in Conklin who are in black mold infested shanties and you know, last time I checked, it's not getting any warmer in Fort McMurray. <laughs> so. Nope. And, and yet, where's the money? Yeah. And it, it's nowhere to be seen. Well, and then, you know, uh, on the heels of, of this came in on uh, uh, First Nation, uh, the Cat Lake First Nation, uh, north of Thunder Bay, actually issued a, you know, a state of emergency for their community because of housing issues, which are causing massive amounts of health issues and within their community and people are having to get medevaced out on a regular basis too and things like that. So again, where's this money that's promised for housing and infrastructure and all these things and why isn't something being done? And I, <laughs> before we praise, I think we have to turn to them and say, okay, may accomplish something that actually makes the lives of indigenous people better and in a very tangible way. And, you know, I mean, doing things like coming out with an Indigenous language uh, program and, and creating a whole new office in the government to hire more staff to, to for an Indian, that's fantastic. That's a good thing to do. Absolutely. 
But when you compare that to there's people in a state of emergency because they have no adequate housing, I think the money might be better spent on the housing. That would drastically improve people's lives. So, I mean, we, you know, like you said, we see that in Conklin. We're seeing that in Métis communities. We're seeing it in Northern and First Nation communities everywhere. Um, the Inuit have a deficit on infrastructure. And yet here we sit. And this is supposed to be the best prime minister we've ever seen for Indigenous people. Yep. And that's why, you know, how many times have we talked about it on the show that, that uh, we have Indigenous people right across the land who are in distress, who are in, you know, in peril, who are requiring emergency services to make it through their daily lives. And on a critical portfolio like, you know, infrastructure, um, you know, where's the money? Where's the the relief? You know, promises like you mentioned before about eliminating the boil advisories and yet that in itself hasn't happened. Yeah. And, you know, so... For what uh, the Trudeau government claims is their their uh, most important relationship and their number one portfolio, uh, man, I'd hate to see number two. <laughs> well, I, I think that would be Veterans Affairs, wouldn't it? And we all know that they're just asking for more than what Canada can provide. So <laughs> it's just, but see, that's the common theme with all of these departments where um, where it's it's things like this, where you have Veterans Affairs. The two big ones for me are Veterans Affairs and, and Indigenous Affairs. And they kind of get the same shaft. They get the same runaround. They get the same, oh, we lost money. We don't know where we put it. And, oh, we're promised a bunch, but we didn't spend it. And for some reason, it's always these two departments that seem to get shafted the most out of any of them that I can tell. And uh, I just... I mean, I don't know what the answers are because I don't know what, you know, oh, vote for Andrew Shear. Well, I, he's not going to do anything better. He's not going to do anything more different. It's going to be the same shit four years from now if we had a conservative government, a liberal government, or an NDP government, or a Green Party government. It's the same crap. So I don't know what to do, but I just know we can't rely on Jesus Trudeau. Well, and I think that's a valid point. I think Indigenous people right across the country need to wake up to the fact that we have uh, serious problems and we need to fix them. And it's sadly, we're going to have to look to ourselves to do it because, you know, as we've seen here, you're absolutely correct. It's not going to matter what party gets in. You yeah. know, uh, Alberta had the biggest swing in, in uh, political, plec- you know, electrical uh, perspective shift in the last election going from, you know, the conservatives to the NDP. Yep. And yet we've seen what has the NDP done? Since getting in there, they have not been the greatest proponents of, uh, you know, one of our furthest left parties. Yes. Um, you know, here we have uh, the, the the leader of that NDP party here in Alberta who's pro-pipeline. Yep. And, and trying to get a pipeline pushed through uh, to BC. So, you know, is that, what does that really show us? I think that's to wake up and say that the colonial system is the system. And regardless of the flavor that you want to put in your ice cream, <laughs> it's still a milk product. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think we got to start, I, I really truly believe we got to start looking at it like, what can we use that the government has in existence already? What loopholes can we use? What programs can we access that everybody else can too, that just indigenous haven't in the past? And how can we, if we need to change some language and some paperwork to get a, 
get in on something or, or use a loophole or do something, I think we got to look at how can we selfish, very selfishly, I think we got to look at how can we use and abuse our government with a smile on our face and have them feel good about it too. And I think we've talked about that a little bit in the past about, you know, using existing structure or, um, you know, programs or, or whatever policies the government has to our advantage. And if it's just a matter of paperwork, fill out the paperwork, get it in and, and just get the government to say, Hey, that's great. You guys go do that too. Like everybody else. But I just think there's so much that we can, we can get out of the government and we take them for everything they can. And then, but at the same time, we have to do it, the work on our own. We have to fix our people. We have to fix our infrastructure. We have to fix our housing. We have to fix all of this stuff because no government is ever going to do it. No government ever has done it, and they're never going to do it. Um, or if they are, it's well, going to be 400 years from now. Well, they're not going to fix it. Let's face facts. They don't want people living on reserve. They don't want yeah. maintaining people living on the land. That's why there isn't no, there's not one single promise I have seen to Métis people that includes land. Yeah. And they're not putting any money into any reserves because they don't want people living there. They want everybody assimilated and off the land. Absolutely. So if we want to stay on the land and we want to participate, you know, in our traditional sacred spaces, the only way that's going to happen, I see moving forward into the future is we're going to have to solve that problem on ourselves. And if that's creative government funding, if that's crowdsourcing, if that's pulling up our you know, ourselves out of the dust and, and making this happen, whether, you know, if it's alternative energy, if it's alternative water sources, whatever it has to be, I think this is a uh, uh, not a problem of our making, but it's only going to be a problem if we can, so, you know, find the solution ourselves. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I mean, I'm not the smartest guy on the planet, so I don't know all the answers, but I do know that, I mean, you can, <laughs> history just keeps continuing to repeat itself. And, you know, from the Harper government to this current Trudeau government, same things, same results, same missing money, same lack of infrastructure, same lack of this, same lack of that. So, yeah, there's there's a few more little things that we, we see that they do because they're it's low-hanging fruit and it's easy. And they want to roll it out right before an election and say, look, we created an indigenous language office, blah, 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 when, which is great. That's fantastic. But at the end of the day, again, you're hiring probably a bunch of non-Indigenous people to work in the office, and those people are going to be in control of Indigenous languages, and there's only a certain number of Indigenous languages that they're going to work on, not all of them. So it, like, it, it's just more government bureaucracy. And at the end of the day, we are losing our languages, we're losing a lot of this stuff, and the only people that are going to fix it is us. Um, you know, and, and maybe that means investing money. Maybe that means doing a lot of other things that we're not, that maybe aren't being done on a large scale right now. I don't know, but, uh, certainly we do. I think we do need to find a way on our own. Well, I think it really is the only way. Um, and I'm not sure how to make that happen. I know there's a lot of avenues out there, but we've been on this land for since the beginning of time. And we've uh, always been able to find our own way forward and solve the problems for our people on our own. And I think this is going to be no different. Absolutely. So moving on from that, um, I don't know if there's anything else you want more to say about that, Jay, but I think we kind of beat that dead horse to a pulp. <laughs> moving on. 
So there was a, a, a story uh, from the U of M, um, what was it, two months ago? Uh, one of their profs resi- resigned because of uh, the inherent systemic racism within the, uh, the I guess, management of the university. And then just uh, last week, another prof resigned because of the exact same reason. And uh, it, it was interesting to listen to the video just because, um, you know, the guy was talking about how it doesn't, there's not a top-down driver on eliminating the racism towards their indigenous students. There very much was still a bias, like, you know, if certain, if indigenous students were enrolled in certain, you know, academic programs, well, they automatically, the attitude was, well, they're not going to be very successful because they're not, they're not suited for that. They're, you know, they're not in, they're indigenous. So they're not suited for that kind of a program. They should do something else. And just a lot of things like that. So I thought that was really interesting and, I know uh, for anybody who's interested, back in episode 41 and 42, we actually talked a little bit about um, education issues that Métis people face in post-secondary. So I thought this was very interesting um, just because the guy was very clear that it's the, the problem starts at the top and there's nobody at the top of that university that's driving any type of change and it doesn't seem to be a priority. I don't know. Any What, are, what are your thoughts on that, Jay? Well, again, here here's another government institution that is uh, partly government funded and, and largely funded by the students and the debt they take on to go there. And I think for me, again, it's a, it shows the inability of colonial institutions to respond uh, to the outside uh, in any form, really. Um, it's just simply on Indigenous issues. It is staggering. It never seems to end. And, and of course, it never seems to change. It doesn't matter how many people resign. It doesn't matter what money is kind of thrown around at things here or there. The fundamental attitude and perception by the settlers uh, of Indigenous people um, isn't to see Indigenous people as progressive, as people who can overcome obstacles, you know, or open up new fields, you know. There is this constant underlying attitude of racism, and uh, even in a, in what you would think would be an avenue or an institution that would be able to grapple with this at a core level, like a university. You know, we see universities around the world um, trying to be the forerunners of, you know, change, in institutions that talk about change and promote change and try to give our kids and our youth a vision of a better tomorrow, uh, you know, it's staggering to me that fundamentally there's so many of these institutions like the one in Winnipeg are incapable of that change. Absolutely. And, I, you know, yeah, I mean, it just, I, I think it's just a good reminder that no matter where you go or what you do, um, there is this bias. And, you know, we talked, a bit about that here throughout the episodes, you know, as far as the East versus West and the Métis, you know, battle of identity that certain academics like to perpetuate. Um, But I mean, that's just really one aspect of this, uh, I guess, inherent systemic discrimination towards Indigenous people. Um, You know, for Métis, it ends up being East versus West a lot, uh, with academics and you know, for First Nations, it's just, and Inuit, it's just inherent in general, and you know, and I think for Métis as well, it's inherent in general. But 
you know, like when, when we did our previous episodes, the, the comments I was getting was from people that went to university in various provinces and territories across the country, and they were very similar stories. And and the, the truth is, is this stuff is very, very, very much present. And I know that a lot of universities and post-secondary are putting in indigenous centers and giving them really pretty na- indigenous names and Oh, it's isn't it lovely and isn't it awesome how much reconciliation we're doing? But the truth is, is if you enroll in a in a program and and the professors and the faculty all have the attitude that well, yeah, but you're indigenous. This really isn't for you. You're you're not going to do well at this. Well, you can do all you want and call it reconciliation, but at the end of the day, that's just blatant racism. So it's it is it's a very much a sign I think that people need to be aware of. Yeah, and I feel for for kids who are going into the university system because even with the money that is or isn't hitting these universities with the creation of those spaces, the reality is, the as we see here in Winnipeg, and you and I have talked about on previous shows and with people, the underlying attitudes within the institutions is the same. And that is a sad state of affairs given the fact that it's 2019. Absolutely. And I, I just wonder... You know, now that there's been a little bit of focus put on the U of M, is there really going to be, are we going to see change there? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I would hope, but the, the truth is, is if two professors resign two months apart uh, for the exact same reason, both citing the, you know, the lack of drive on the management of the university to do anything about this, I just don't, I, I'm not going to get my expectations up. You know, I mean, I hope, but at the end of the day, like I think most universities in Canada, this stuff is going to continue to go on. Um, you know, lateral violence between the, you know, the students as far as, you know, non-Indigenous discriminating against Indigenous is going to be allowed to continue uh, because the faculty also hold those same discriminatory beliefs. The management does. The programs are laid out that way. <laughs> Everything about it is is not built for Indigenous people. And you know, I think the first thing that probably everybody, including faculty and management and and other students that are non-Indigenous, always seem to come up with is that all the Indigenous students are there for free. And so it's not fair. And, uh, I mean, that's patently not true, but uh, but I think that's one of the biggest things. So, you, and, you know, universities should have that expectation that, you know, to be make people aware that, no, you know what? These indigenous kids aren't here for free. It's not they don't not every one of them gets a free free, you know, education and stuff like that. So, but you know, it just seems like it's so simple to start dismantling this. But nobody has the drive to do it in that are in positions of of power that could be doing it, you know? That's really sad. Well, I and I think that's the the point I to drive home out of that is, you know, we talk about privilege and the university is no exception to that privilege is that these people in power are, have that privilege and they don't see have or aren't under the impetus to change. And therefore they don't create space and safe space, safe spaces, spaces free of racism for indigenous people. And that's simply because they don't have to, because it's their privilege. And you'd think of all places, a university would be the place that that would be the first to embrace change, the first to, check that privilege and make sure that it was an open and inclusive space. 
but sadly, it seems that privilege is uh, just as fond of it uh, in university as it is in government. Well, absolutely. And I, I really do think the universities are a microcosm of society overall, um, because in, in theory, those are all our future leaders right there. Going to university, one day they're going to be you know, leaders in whatever industry they're in, they're going to be, you know, innovators, they're going to be investment people, they're going to be teachers, they're going to be lawyers, doctors, politicians, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so if they hold these biases through university and those, and the universities not only don't dispel these beliefs, but they actually kind of mollycoddle them and, and encourage it and mold them even and ingrain them even further, they come out of those universities and then what do you got? You got a doctor who's got this bias. You got this lawyer who's got this bias. You got a teacher who's got this bias, who's now teaching grade six students, you know, how shitty indigenous people are and how they get, all get a free education. And it, you know, people wonder, well, why can't this stuff change? Well, the change needs is a start where it's being taught, you know, K through 12 programs that eliminate racism, university programs to eliminate racism, every department in a university then we can start looking at maybe the governments and other things like that. But uh, to me, those are kind of like your your starter steps. That's where you need to focus in order to see change, you know, three, four generations from now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We can't allow the education system from childhood right through to university incubate these kind of, uh, you know, pervasive opinions and, and beliefs. You can't, you know, you can't have someone coming out of university who's never been challenged on racist points of view, especially towards indigenous people. Enter society as large through the workforce or through whatever means they choose to engage at, and then somehow magically they're going to, you know, not be racist. Yeah. You know, that's, it's not going to happen. I mean, statistically, the number of books a person reads after they leave university, you know what it is? I think it's like, I think it's like one, isn't it? Or less than one? Yeah, Yeah, it's less than one. So that's how, phenomenal. How do we pause yeah, well, how do we ever have the hope to change anything in this society when the average books uh, an adult is reading these days is less than one? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then, you know, and uh, then what are we doing? Are we relying on Facebook then? Yeah. Maybe maybe somebody's Twitter feed, right? Well, that's just it. And then and that yeah, like that's what I was gonna say is then what you're relying on is like the Fox News or the you know, the rebel medias of the world to try to educate people. And that is just so the wrong education right there. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, I don't know, man, it's, it's a pretty sad thing. I feel, I feel for any indigenous students going through university right now. Um, And even within the academic world, obviously we've seen within the Métis world, you know, academics that are trying to berate and belittle and demean and, and totally obliterate other academics because of differences of opinions or, I don't know, things like that about Métis identity. But the truth is all that stuff boils down to is discrimination. That's what it is. You can dress it up. You can put some lipstick on it. It's still discrimination. It doesn't change what it is. And uh, it's just sad. It's sad that you see it in professors, management, uh, you know, K through 12 teachers and staff. I mean, I, I just look at what my daughter, she came home the other day and they were learning about, um, oh, I think they were learning about the Mohawk um, and 
I can't remember the the six six nations or the Iron Confederacy or something like that. And like the things that they were teaching these like the these students, like I'm no expert on Mohawk by any stretch of the imagination. I've I've never lived in that territory. I only know one or two people that are actually you know from that area. But even I'm like I don't know if that's true. <laughs> and I mean just just basic common sense. You listen to it and go, I don't think that's true. Like that just doesn't make any sense. But now her whole class has taught this and they're going to move forward in life with that knowledge. And that's in grade six. So, I mean, it's got a starting in kindergarten, right? But, and, and it goes back to the whole point of the conversation is when you're talking reconciliation, we're talking about funds. We're talking about creating these programs and services for indigenous people, but administered through the colonial structure, you know, something as simple as a topic about the Mohawk people, were they actually ever consulted about that program? No. When that, when that whole education came about and they said, this is the vocabulary, this is what we want to teach in classrooms about, you know, your people, were they ever consulted about the, the material? Yeah. And again, I highly doubt, I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. And yet it. we have this, con- yeah, so we have this conversation you know, about, oh, education is the key. Yeah, but how do you educate the settler society about Indigenous people if you never actually consult them about the material you're teaching? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I see memes about that on, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, about, you know, various uh, minorities and minority groups uh, or ethnicities that are discriminated against. Um, and, and you see that all the time. Like, you can't teach something... For example, in the States, I believe it's Black History Month. Well, you can't teach black history like a, a, without actually talking to black people. And, you I mean, then you're just teaching the white version of black history. <laughs> and it's the same thing here. You're, you're teaching a colonial version of indigenous history. And that, that it's, it's nothing the same. It's not even close to the same. And, uh, I mean... And then the the other thing that I have a huge issue with, with these schools and education is, then they say, like, and, and I know this from personal experience, is a lot of these schools, especially elementary and, and junior high and high school, they want people to, they, they want Indigenous people to come in. But they don't want to pay them. They don't want to, you know, do any, well, that's not in the budget. But if you want us to teach us, you know, indigenous to, you know, stuff to our students, well, you should just come in and do it for free. I mean, if you want to, you know, if you say we shouldn't be teaching it because we, we're not indigenous, well, then you should just come in and do it for free. And that just, that in and of itself is one thing that just drives me insane is that they, you know, all these schools and education facilities typically tend to expect that shit for free. Yeah, I mean, that's because they, they're they supposed to teach it, and any chance they can sit down and, and get paid to do nothing while someone else does the teaching for them, you know, I'd be all for that too. Hey, Jason, sit down. I'm going to do your job for free. Yeah. Perfect. That sounds like a great freaking deal. You right. Know? But that that's not how it works, and I and I think that's the whole problem we have is, again, I, I view, and you know, uh, the whole education system as another form of assimilation to make sure Indigenous values aren't taught to our children, that our languages aren't taught, our value system, which I've spoken on quite a bit, are never taught, Yep. and that we're constantly trying to fight to make space within the, you know, colonial settler institutions for our Indigenous identity, 
And sadly, here we are, you know, how many hundreds of years later, and it's not a battle that we're winning. No. Even in the present. No. And so I think, again, this this whole education thing is just another portfolio where we have to really learn how we're going to solve this riddle ourselves to make sure that our kids get to where they need to be, but by doing it ourselves. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you look at what, uh, you know, Isaac Murdoch and, and Chrissy Belcourt are doing and stuff. And, you know, he's been very open about the fact that indigenous knowledge is not looked upon as real, true knowledge. So if you spend, you know, a number of years learning your culture, your language, learning the plants and the animals and hunting and and medicines and things like that and your customs and your traditions and your your ceremonies, all of that, and, and you come out of that with a certain base of knowledge that, that actually does make you an expert in a lot of things. But to the colonial world, that 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 in um, education has zero value whatsoever. I mean, that it just has no value because you didn't get it in university and you didn't get a piece of paper to put on your wall. And I, you know, that's an that's one of those things that I think I've talked about before that I have an issue with is that, you know, you you look at these elders and these schools and everybody wants them to come in for free to teach this stuff because well, you should just feel lucky to come into our school and teach this. But what you're saying is you're really saying to that person, your knowledge isn't really have any value, so it's not worth paying for. But you would never say that to somebody with a PhD, you know? Um, and I think we see that in the Métis academic arguments, the East versus West. There's a certain academic who is himself not Métis who actually makes money by doing speeches and appearances and writing books about Métis identity, but because his knowledge is 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 enjoyed and, and encouraged because he has a PhD. But I know my Métis elders here in Calgary who actually lived their entire life Métis, um, they, their, their knowledge, for some reason, isn't making it on APTN because it has no value. They're not the ones making it on CBC because it has no value because they don't have a PhD. And I, I just think that's the problem, you know, with this colonial structure is it puts the emphasis on the wrong knowledge and it, it makes this piece of paper so valuable. But your lifetime of experience has no value. And it, that just doesn't, again, you know, you talked about this many times and on recent episodes about how the colonial system doesn't fit with Métis or um, Indigenous values. And I think that's a, this is a really good sign of exactly that. Yeah, and I, and I totally believe that, that we're, we're, we have a competing value system, you know, and, and you're exactly right. How many times have we seen that the space for traditional knowledge, I mean, up front, is, is laughed at? We have two competing worldviews. We have, a, you know, the European worldview that says the only value is in the written word. The only value is in the, you know, the book-learned education system. And the only a credible proof we have that you know something is the piece of paper you get at the end. But that is totally counter an indigenous worldview. Yeah. The indigenous worldview says our oral tradition is what matters most. Yes. Our understanding of the land and the lessons that it teaches us 
is the value we have. Mm-hmm. And our understanding of our medicines and our traditional systems, not only of governance, but of healing, are how we pass down our knowledge base. And these are two totally different competing worldviews. Yeah. And, and I think that's something we need to understand when we're addressing the, the government and its institutions that it puts in place to interface with us is that we don't speak the same language even in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a good way to end the show tonight. I think, um, you know, we could probably go on for hours and hours and we have many times, Um, but I think for tonight we're good. That's uh, that's a lot of ranting, but um, you know, I hope, I, I guess my hope from us having these conversations on the show all the time are just to get people to, to be aware of, of things and make people turn a critical eye to the things they read in the, in the media and on social media, especially when it comes to, you know, like just to kind of recap, like the government spending, things like that. And, and, and then turn a critical eye to the academic world as well. And, you know, when, I think when people start to say, let's decolonize and something like, that's a big thing. That isn't just, you know, oh, well, let's have a few powwow, go to a few powwows and call it good. Like, it, it's massive. And I think every time my hope is that we, we bring up some of these issues is that, you know, wh- whether people suddenly become, you know, quote unquote woke or something. But I just hope people start to understand that let's look at these things very critically. And let's be very aware of what government promises are and university promises of reconciliation are and, you know, even your municipal and federal go- or provincial governments and what are they doing? And, um, you know, because there's so much of these systems are just broken and nobody's fixing them. But because they're not necessarily in the news all the time, people tend to forget that that's what's happening. So I hope everybody out there can can have these conversations. Uh, but I guess I'm done ranting for now. I don't know if you got any last words, Jason. Uh, grow a beard. It's cold out. <laughs> if you can't grow a beard, I guess you got to get a scarf. That's right. That's right. Um, so again, if, uh, you like having independent Métis media and you think that that's important and you want to hear more stories from around this, this land of ours and, you know, get more elder stories, that kind of thing, head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com dot com slash Métis podcast sign up for as little as five bucks a month and you'll be part of this show expanding its content and you will be you'll get a, a warm and welcomed hug from afar from both jason and i um <laughs> so please do that uh you can also find us on social media at Métis podcast i think on everything facebook and twitter uh instagram uh so i guess uh, until next week guys for both jason and i the jig is up a spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses, a fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light. No more living in darkness. Our time now.